And a happy hump day to one and all. This is episode 25 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. If you're joining me on my YouTube channel and you've enjoyed the content so far, don't forget to click like and smash that subscriber bell. Or if you're joining me for the audio version of the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the other platforms, if and only if you like the content, please click like and subscribe. So I realized that through all of these episodes that I've been putting out for you, and I appreciate the feedback, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I don't mean the movie, uh, I haven't really talked about comedy. And I'm actually a big fan of comedy movies. And it's mostly, they're not really represented over here. Blue Velvet has some funny moments, but like in a, holy shit, what are we getting into? Kind of funny. Um, but I love to laugh. I'm a fan of stand-up comedy. Um, for reference, some of my favorite stand-up comics are Robert Schimmel, who unfortunately has passed, George Carlin, who has also passed, uh, Robert Klein, went to school with my dad. He's still very much alive. Um, those are some of my favorite stand-up comics. Uh, Bo Burnham is ingenious. I don't necessarily think he's that funny as a stand-up comic, but he's brilliant. Bill Burr is pretty funny. Eddie Murphy, of course. Chris Rock is hysterical. So a lot of different eras of stand-up comics that uh, who I appreciate. But wearing this shirt today, I hate to say it this way, but a lot of the kids are not going to know what this shirt, what this means, what it has to do with anything. The shirt says, looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing glue. And this quote is from, I believe, one of the funniest movies ever made, a 1980 film by David Zucker and Jerry Zucker called Airplane, with an exclamation point at the end of it. And it is a, it's the kind of comedy that was not really made before, where it's total farce. It takes serious situations and just makes them funny. And it was loosely based on a couple of different films uh, from the 50s, which were very serious. Uh, in the same way that uh, Stanley Kubrick's, um, the, the book was called Failsafe. And there was a movie called Failsafe. And Kubrick made a film called Dr. Strangelove, or how I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. It took a serious book and turned it into a blackly comic farce. Airplane had a similar idea, only it went past black comedy just to laugh out loud comedy. So even though you have events that out of context, well, this isn't funny. You have an entire crew getting violently ill and passengers puking left and right, they're all gonna die, but we're gonna laugh? Yes. And that was the genius of the Zucker brothers. And the other guy's name, I think, was Abrams. Um, the genius was that they made it funny. And the key way that they were able to make it funny, in my opinion, is they found a somewhat obscure, at that particular time, serious, B-movie action star named Leslie Nielsen. And they had him 
deliver his lines as though he was in those same B-movie actioners like Dayton's Devils, which is like, if somebody said, what's a movie kind of like The Great Escape, but not The Great Escape? Dayton's Devils. It's that sort of a film. So they took Leslie Nielsen and they had him deliver his lines as if he is in a serious film. But because the material is so absurd, it's funny. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And stop calling me Shirley. Never fails to make me laugh. So the original Airplane, which was one of the first really funny movies that I ever saw, it was on HBO. I was probably seven going on eight. And it is a film that every time it was on, I watched, if I could. Oddly enough, 2001 A Space Odyssey was one of those movies for me also. Even as a six-year-old boy, I guess I was a cinephile in waiting. I appreciated it, the visuals. I used to get right up into the, next to the TV. Couldn't believe what I was seeing. But Airplane always made me laugh. And even now, put it on. A lot of the humor is dated. It doesn't make sense. You know, they just start talking about Jimmy Carter and who's that. But the, the substance of it, the absurdity, the stuff that they wouldn't be able to get away with now, not making judgment, it's a reality. That is, there's no way that movie, as presented, would be made today. Um, I can't even tell you how many times I watched that movie. And then I saw the sequel, Airplane 2, the sequel, very clever title. I actually thought that was funnier than the first one, in part because William Shatner you know, Admiral James Tiberius Kirk himself, he shows up in the final act to kind of take over the movie, and he is hilarious already in, and that was the year he made uh, Star Trek The Wrath of Khan, but he was already showing that he could poke fun at himself. He wasn't taking himself so seriously, and you know, he was a guy who was known for hamming it up and, and very sort of self-important line readings, but he's there having a fucking blast. And he, to me, is the highlight of Airplane 2, the sequel. As much as I enjoy, you know, the interaction, the 2001 A Space Odyssey references with the computer, you know, the, the ridiculousness with um, um, Peter Graves, who was the original Mission Impossible TV show, where it's like, um, Captain Over, we have a computer malfunction. What do we do? Well, we should run it through the computer. Right. Yeah, like, total absurdity. But the anything for a laugh while in the service to the story. In the original airplane, there's an extraordinary moment early in the film where you realize that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, whose playing career as a basketball star, one of the best ever, was still very much ongoing. Like he won, I think, three more championships with the Magic Johnson Lakers after his role in this film. And we know it's him. Yeah, he's dressed as a pilot, but the first time I saw the movie, I remember thinking, okay, the, even though I'm like a little boy, I'm like, that's Kareem, that's Kareem, that's Kareem. And I didn't know how they were going to use him. But there's a moment in the movie where a young boy comes up to the cockpit to meet the, the crew, and he says what we're thinking. He goes, you're Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You play basketball for the Los Angeles Lakers. And Kareem says, see my name tag? My name's Roger Murdoch. And the scene then plays out. He's just, no, I'm, I'm Roger Murdoch. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not, 
don't know, did you see the name tag? But then later in the movie, there's a moment where you see that he is in uniform, under the uniform, and it is hilarious. But that's the kind of thing that the Zucker brothers were able to do in this film. And that level of satire is very difficult to, to master and to harness. And Leslie Nielsen, later in his career, made a few movies like Wrongfully Accused and um, uh, Spy Hard. It didn't work. They just didn't work. It's almost like it's magic if you can capture it, lightning in a bottle, and it was, it's very difficult to do. So I love the first two airplane movies. And I mean, the original Ghostbusters, it's a little bit sci-fi. It has elements of horror. There's elements of romance. But at heart, the goal is make people laugh. Yes, with great special effects for the time, you know, the early days of, I don't know if you would call it CGI, but there were things that were being done in the computer, which years earlier they couldn't. There were a lot of practical effects. But Ghostbusters was a movie that I thought was hysterical. I saw Beverly Hills Cop, didn't think it was funny. Liked it as an action movie, even as a 10 or 11 year old kid. Back to the Future, another great comedy, which is kind of more science fiction, but a movie that made me laugh. When I think of the movies that cracked me up the most, where I had moments of sustained laughter, um, and we're talking about comedies because I'll tell you a story from a movie that's not a comedy because the single biggest laugh I ever had was not in a comedy. But moving forward, the first Naked Gun film, I would argue is actually funnier than either of the airplane movies. Again, they, they cast Leslie Nielsen perfectly. And he had been in a TV show, and I, I didn't know this at the time, a TV show called Police Squad, which would be in the ballpark of, uh, was it Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Um, the, the show with Andy Samberg. I, I'm not really that familiar with the show. I know that the late, now unfortunately just passed, Andre Brown was in it, uh, but I'm not familiar with that show. And um, so the original Naked Gun is screamingly funny. And that's also a film that there is a lot of topical humor that, well, what does that mean? Like there's a whole thing with Gorbachev at the beginning and, and the Ayatollah Khomeini and all this stuff like but it, the movie is still hysterical. Leslie Nielsen, if anything, is even funnier in The Naked Gun because he's the lead. In the airplane movies, technically Robert Hayes' character, Ted Stryker, and, and Leslie is only in the first airplane, I should point out. I love all three Naked Gun movies. First one is by far the best. Second one is, is a pretty good story. I think even a better story, it actually makes more sense than the first one. Like there's actually a little bit of a plot, like a, like more of a villainous plot. First one is kind of just beats you over the head. Ricardo Montalban is absolute scream. You know, what, what's Ricardo Montalban's best villain performance? Is it Khan in Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan? Or is it Vincent Ludwig in The Naked Gun? I mean, he's, he's so good. He's so good in that movie because yes, he's playing a villain, but he knows he's in a comedy and he's just relishing it. No pun intended, there's a famous scene where he bites into a hot dog and doesn't get exactly what, what he expected. But I'm reminded, the single biggest laugh that I've ever had while watching a movie, there's actually two, man, it's amazing, the stuff that, that just pops into mind. You know, again, the neurodivergence stuff just But the story, when I was actually uh, in a home setting, watching a film on, at the time, VHS. 
another one of my many movies that I consider a favorite is a very serious suspense thriller, which I've mentioned on previous podcasts without going into too much detail, called Marathon Man. I believe it's Dustin Hoffman's finest performance. Didn't get nominated, didn't win any Oscars, but he is electric in the lead role of this film. And it is definitely a top five suspense thriller of the 70s. It is a great film. And that's a film that even though there are dated elements, it is a hell of a thriller. And anybody who's like, hey, what's it like a great old school thriller? Marathon Man. I had read the book by the extraordinary William Goldman, Princess Bride, All the President's Men, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Just a great, great writer, great author, and a great screenwriter. So he wrote this book, and he made it into a movie, which, as I say, similar to the book, there are certain things they couldn't really do, things you can do in a book that you can't do in a movie. You can have characters with different names in a book, and you think it's two different people, and in the movie you realize, okay, Roy Scheider is playing this same guy. You know, like they couldn't do that because Scheider was going to essentially be playing two characters. No, it wouldn't work. But in the book, there were two separate characters. Anyway. Dustin Hoffman, not surprisingly, plays a guy who his goal really, I mean, he's a grad student, he's a historian, but he's a runner. And his idol is Olympic uh, miler, Abibi Bikila, who had won two gold medals and ran barefoot. He is a runner. He wants to, at the very least, run the New York City Marathon. In a fantasy world, he would be somebody that could compete at a much higher level than just running around Central Park and knocking off, you know, 10 miles at a time. So. He lives in an area of Manhattan. It's not a terrible spot, bad apartment, but he has some kind of annoying neighbors across the street that are always making fun of him. They're always making fun of him, calling him names, creepy, creep, the creepy, whatever it is. And early in the film, he gets home from a run and he has a stopwatch and he's checking his time. And I was watching this movie. It's the summer of 1991. I'm 17 years old. I had rented it from uh, the old blockbuster video. I was visiting my dad's parents in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Grandpa Nat was still in his 70s at the time. Like he hadn't even turned eight. He and my grandmother, may they both rest in peace, were sleeping. I'm in the living room. It's a nice TV that he had set up there. And I am just watching this movie. And I'm already riveted by the story. There's Nazis. What's Roy Scheider's character? He tells the brother that he's in the oil business, but he's actually a a James Bond kind of a spy, it's very intriguing. And then all of a sudden, I get slammed with something unexpected. So Dustin Hoffman comes back from his run, he's all sweaty, and you've got a group of guys, like six or seven guys across the street, they're making fun of him, they're screaming, creepy, creepy, creep, creep, creep. And then the kind of ringleader of this group of guys that make fun of Dustin Hoffman's character, he's all sweaty. And the one guy goes like this, and he goes, you got to time yourself in a shower? And he makes, like, sex faces while he's doing this. Well, I had never seen anything like that in a movie in my life. And I screamed with laughter. I screamed with laughter. I couldn't stop laughing. It was a half hour, a half hour 30 seconds, half a minute of me screaming with laughter. And I heard Grandpa move around, and I'm like, oh, fuck. And then I kind of calmed down, but then I didn't hear anything. So I rewound it again, and I started screaming again. I watched this three times consecutive, and then I paused it, and I 
could not stop laughing. So that's the biggest laugh I had in the moment while in a kind of confined setting at home. The biggest laugh I had in a movie theater is another film which is not a comedy, strange as it may seem. 1998, Memorial Day weekend. I take my sister to see Godzilla, the Matthew Broderick, um, Emrich Devlin production, which everybody was excited about. You remember, size does matter. Great, great promotion. Movie is just not that good. But what that movie did have, which entertained me throughout, it was there was a running gag that Emrich and Devlin had kind of a, not a real feud, but they had a little bit of an issue with uh, the film critics, both of whom unfortunately have passed. Uh, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, who had, they were the most famous film critics in the country by far. They had the TV show, they both wrote for Chicago newspapers, Siskel wrote for the Tribune, Ebert famously wrote for the Sun-Times, and as I mentioned, Ebert was held in very high esteem by most people because he did win a Pulitzer for criticism years earlier. Uh, but Emmerich and Devlin, the sense was they felt that Siskel and Ebert were somewhat unfair to their films. And they had come out with Stargate and uh, Independence Day. Those were two of the movies that they had made to that point in their career. So they decided they weren't going to get nasty. They were going to have a little fun. And they cast a terrific Oscar-nominated actor named Michael Lerner, who kind of resembled Roger Ebert in real life. They decided they were going to have a character in Godzilla called Mayor Ebert. And they, Michael Lerner's hair and makeup and costuming, he's supposed to be Roger Ebert. And his name in the film is Mayor Ebert. This is not an accident. They found an actor who looked like he could have been Gene Siskel's brother. That's how much this guy looked like. And I believe his name is Laurie Goldman. His character's name is Gene. So early in the movie, you meet Michael Lerner, and before I can even say he looks like Roger Ebert, somebody calls him Mayor Ebert, I start like, like that. And then when he has a side man, this chief of staff, is Gene, I'm, I'm giggling, giggling. So this is throughout the movie, the relationship between Mayor Ebert, who's a, a total clown in a suit, like he's, the guy doesn't know which end is up. Now you could say that's every politician, but he doesn't, he's so incompetent, he's got a bad attitude, and he's always bullying Gene. And I guess they're kind of thinking that Roger Ebert didn't treat Gene Siskel that well, but I, I actually thought they had a good back and forth because there were points where one guy was, was burying the other. It was definitely not one way. But in the world of the movie, Ebert is totally, constantly cutting Gene down. What do I even keep you around? You know, there's one moment that had me really laughing, which is because the real Roger Ebert at the time was heavy. Michael Lerner was a heavy, a heavy set individual. And at one point in the film, everyone's panicking. This, this creature is going to kill us all. And Ebert is stressy. Mayor Ebert is stressy. He's eating like Hershey Kisses. And the character of Gene goes to grab the bag of Hershey Kisses. And he goes, didn't we say that we were going to cut out sweets till after the election? And Ebert grabs it back. And he goes, back off, Gene. And my sister and I, we were like, we, we were trying not to completely lose it, but as fans of Siskel and Ebert, to me this was gold. So this theme runs through the movie of 
Mayor Ebert and Gene and Ebert's incompetent, he sucks, and Gene is actually the, the brains behind the operation, but he never listens to him. Everything that the character of Gene says is completely dismissed. So I'm not thinking that this is building to anything in particular. But at the very end of the movie, the, the threat has been neutralized, let's just say. I'm not really giving anything away. And Ebert, Mayor Ebert, thinks that there's a way that, that he can leverage this to increase his standing with the public. And Gene says something like, I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's risky. You don't need to. It could backfire. And Ebert basically rags on him and says, you don't know what you're talking about, you idiot. And Gene goes, idiot? Oh, and I should point out, before I get to the punchline, the real Siskel and Ebert were famous for this. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Now, when they wrote their, uh, their reviews for their respective newspapers, they gave a star rating. And, and nowadays, I feel like most star ratings are either out of five stars or out of 10. But when I was growing up, uh, usually it was four. And Siskel and Ebert didn't give a star rating on their program. They would do it in print. And generally speaking, if a movie got two and a half stars or better, they would probably give it a thumbs up. Occasionally, there were two and a half star films that each found so frustrating that they, they said, you know, famously, I recommend the performances, but not the movie. You would say stuff like that. And the other guy would say, well, how are they going to see the movie? <laughs> how are they going to see the performances if you don't recommend the movie? They actually got into an argument about that once. So, Thumbs up, thumbs down. Two thumbs up for Cisco and Ebert. You know, one of these posters might actually have that on, on there. Uh, I don't think Rounders does. No, I guess not. They gave two thumbs up to Chariots of Fire. Both guys thought the film was a masterpiece. In Ebert's case, he thought it was one of the best films he'd seen in a decade. Siskel loved it, but like at the end of the year, Ebert had it as this should be Oscar for Best Picture, and it won. Siskel had it in the top ten, but like ninth or tenth. He wasn't as sold. But anyway, the point is, thumbs up, thumbs down. And in the movie Godzilla, that is a theme. Right when we meet Mayor Ebert, this is his trademark. Thumbs up for Mayor Ebert. Thumbs up. And he's taking pictures going like this. So we reach this point in the film where the threat is neutralized and Ebert again totally dismisses who was presumably his chief of staff is saying you don't want to risk this it, it could backfire you don't need to go public you don't need to act like we had said don't do this and Ebert calls him an idiot and the character of Gene goes you know what I think of you your whole campaign he gives him a thumbs down I was not expecting it, neither was my sister. When the character of Gene gives Mayor Ebert the thumbs down that for decades already, Siskel and Ebert, thumbs up, thumbs down. He gives Ebert the thumbs down. And I had a reaction very similar to Marathon Man seven years earlier, but even more intense. Because I couldn't rewind it, it was one time I started screaming immediately. I was screaming with laughter immediately. And I did not stop laughing 
into, we exited the theater and the tears are streaming down my face. I was covering my mouth. My sister was looking around like, yeah, don't mind him, he's nuts or whatever. And I was laughing. I staggered out of the theater. I was crashing into walls. I was just in complete, I was completely helpless. I could not stop laughing. Finally got back to the car. I'm still laughing. And then I stopped. Jessica's like 14 or 15. She's like, you okay? And then I start laughing again. That was the single greatest or worst laughter attack of my life. And so essentially the two biggest bursts of laughter from movies, neither were comedies. One is like sci-fi actioner or whatever you want to call it with Godzilla. The other, a suspense thriller and one of the best suspense thrillers, Marathon Man. But that's the thing with comedy and with humor. Another one of the most sustained laughs, the biggest most sustained laugh in a comedy, Home Alone, the scene with 1-2-10 with the pizza delivery guy. That I rewound at least six times and I was laughing my ass off all the way back then, you know, 1990, 1991. That's probably the biggest laugh I've ever gotten from a comedy movie. Um, yeah, it's so subjective. Humor is subjective. There are stand-up comics that a lot of people love that don't work for me. And there have been a lot of funny movies. There's something about Mary. A lot of Gen Xers and, you know, some older millennials saw it when, it when it came out. It's on their list of favorite comedies. I didn't laugh. I saw it in a mostly full theater with people that were just, they were dying, they were laughing so hard, tears were streaming down their face. And I'm like, this isn't funny. What's wrong with you people? It's very subjective. So what I might find funny, some of the crazy stuff in the movie Blue Velvet, you might not find funny. I'm chuckling at the character of Frank Booth because he says so many outlandish things. Uh, but again, that's what makes a horse race. Who am I to judge what you find funny? You can judge me. I'm not going to judge you. That's what I say. I'm as non-judgmental as I can possibly be. Uh, but as far as conventional film comedies, I've given you some of the standards you know, of the uh, 80s uh, into the 90s. And... Um, you know, I remember when Airplane was on Netflix, it was, it, got, uh, it was in the top 10 for quite some time. Spaceballs, another dopey, my favorite Mel Brooks film. It's dopey, but I think it's hysterical. Another movie that is a little dated now because a lot of the references are just, you know, they're not going to work. Um, but, you know, hit me up in the comments if you happen to see the YouTube video. I'm curious what some of your favorite comedies are. Or... If you want to go beyond it, as I did, I mean, I, I have time to where I can kind of stretch. I'm not just writing a comment here. What were some of the funniest moments to you in movies that were not supposed to make you laugh? Because I don't know that that scene in Marathon Man was supposed to do what it did. I do know that the thumbs down, the filmmakers had to have thought that was a scream. They wouldn't have included it in there. I don't think they were expecting somebody to almost, you know, drop to the floor from laughing so hard. But, you know, with comedy in general, um, Howard Stern, of all people, I remember when Private Parts came out, somebody asked him, because um, that, that's actually pretty straightforward uh, and, and a terrific comedy, I think, because Howard doesn't really get into the kind of crazy stuff that he had done previously and would later do when he got onto satellite radio. But he talked about 
comedy. And he said, however you make people laugh, it's okay. He said, if you want to say, if you're the kind of person that prefers the more intellectual humor, fine, that's okay. But if you're asking me, is there such a thing as a better laugh? No. If your job it is, is it, if your goal is to make people laugh and they laugh, you've achieved your objective. And I agree, whatever it is, because laughter, we hear that such a cliche is the best medicine, but so much of life is difficult, right? If we can laugh, even at things that, mm, is it okay to laugh at this? Go right ahead. You know, in the immortal words of Han Solo in Empire Strikes Back, laugh it up, fuzzball. Or as the uh, famous musical number, make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh. So you see the setup being different. And um, I hope that you've enjoyed episode 25 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. I want to thank you again, once again, very much for joining me tonight. If you're joining me on my YouTube channel and you enjoyed episode 25, as well as other ones that you may have seen, don't forget to click like, smash that subscriber bell. If you're joining me for the audio version of the podcast, whether it's on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, or Google Podcasts, and you enjoy it, don't forget to click like and subscribe. I'll be back with episode 26 real, real soon. Take care.